You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. The book of Numbers uh, and chapter number one, but let's go over some basic information about numbers like we always have. I am going to be talking fast tonight, but it's 634 and I do not want to keep you here too late. It's just such an amazing book and I want to give it its proper due. Uh, So please follow along and you can always listen back again on YouTube or the podcast. I will have this uploaded just as soon as possible. The book of Numbers was written in 1400 BC and the time period covers 1450 BC to 1400 BC. And if you're comparing your notes between the other books that we have already covered, you'll see that many of these were written right at the same time. Uh, Moses was an incredibly busy man, but he was a very disciplined man to be able to write all of these down. Uh, The author was Moses, and the audience, of course, is the nation of Israel. And the book of Numbers focuses on the journey that the Israelites took from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. Therefore, the outline is based off of that journey. And you're going to have five points to the outline. Point one, three, and five are going to be the major places that they stopped at. And then points two and four are going to be the journeys that they took in between these major places. So the first part is the stop at Mount Sinai. And that's where they are now. But this is covered in chapters one through the first part of chapter 10, their place at Mount Sinai. The second part of chapter 10 uh, through chapter 12 is talking about their journey from Mount Sinai to Paran, or the wilderness of Paran, P-A-R-A-N. And that leads us to the third part of our outline, the second stop in the wilderness of Paran, and chapters 13 through 19 cover this time. From the wilderness of Paran, they are going to journey to Moab, and that is covered in chapters 20 and 21. And then the last stop in the plains of Moab, right across the Jordan River from Canaan, are covered in chapters 22 through 36. Let me repeat those quickly, because I know know that you're probably trying to write those on. So uh, the first stop was at Mount Sinai. Chapters 1 through the first part of chapter 10. Then they journey from Sinai to Paran, and that's the second part of chapter 10 through 12. Then they stop in the wilderness of Paran. This is covered in chapters 13 through 19. Then they journey from Paran to Moab, and that's covered in 20 and 21. And then they're going to make their final stop in the plains of Moab, right across from the Jordan, or right across the Jordan River from Canaan, in chapters 22 through 36. Let's pray, and we will begin with our study. Father, we need you. Uh, help us to go through this uh, wonderful book in an orderly fashion. And Lord, I pray that because uh, I see nothing but order and decency, and um, and step by step instructions that are given in this book. Thank you that you are a God of order. Thank you for giving us an example uh, in your word of the order and decency that we should follow as a church and as Christians. Help us always to have that testimony. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So if one could say that that Leviticus took a break from stories, Numbers has its fair share of them. It's a very incredible book to read. In Genesis, this is what I wrote down kind of at the title of of all of these books in my Bible so far. In Genesis, we see God's blessings. In Exodus, we see God's power. In Leviticus, we see God's holiness. In Numbers, we're going to see God's order. And even the name of the book calls to mind the thoughts of order. And think about this with me. One of the main ways that God manifests his plan for order, even today, is through the means of authority. Now, authority is only part of what is needed, but if true order is ever going to be achieved, there not only has to be set authority, 
But then there has to be submission and obedience to that authority. Now, up until now, the Israelites have only known submission to a violent and oppressive earthly, could we call it, earthly authority in Egypt. But what God is going to show them is submission and obedience to godly authority, and even if we want to say God-given authority, will bring order and decency in all that they do. Uh, Even today, there are things that have been set in order uh, that the Bible talks about as far as the children being subject to the parents and then the wife to the husband, the husband to the church, the church to the pastor, the pastor to the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus to God the Father. When somebody seeks to change that authority, that's called being out of order. And when things are out of order, they don't work. They do not work properly. Uh, So, unfortunately, what we're going to see time and time again is Israel rejects their godly authority. And they seek to set up their own, or they question their godly authority, and thereby they bring disorder. They bring complications, they bring punishment, and they even bring death. And we obtain a glimpse of this call to order right away in chapters 1 through 5. God prepares his people to begin their journey from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. Remember here, when they left Egypt, 600,000 footmen, just foot soldiers, we're talking about possibly 2 million, 3 million people. How do they move? What is the best way to do that in an orderly fashion? That's what chapter 1 through 5 is all about. In chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, God calls for Moses to take a census or a numbering of the people, where the book gets its name, of the tribes of Israel. And in this census, Moses and Aaron were to count all of the males from 20 years old and upward that were able to go to war. Very specific. Only the males 20 and upward that are able to go to war, it says in verse 3. In verses 4 through 16, the first 12 men that were called of these tribes were placed in charge of all of these soldiers in their tribe. The Bible calls these men renowned of the congregation. Or, in other words, they were fit to be leaders. Why? Because authority brings order. 17 through 46 talks about how the soldiers are numbered at 603,550 men ready to fight. 603,550. And it's important to note that the first stage of preparation in moving to the promised land was to enlist soldiers for battle because part of God's plan for Israel was to rid the world of corrupt nations using their military power. Um, In verses 47 through 51, the Levites, we are told, are not numbered for the battle because they were to care for the tabernacle alone. And then the uh, chapter ends by leading us into the next chapters with, again, more calls to order. Each tribe is told, you are going to pitch in your own camp, and you're each going to have your own standard with the Levites encamping around the tabernacle. Brother James, would you go ahead and bring up that picture here? And I want to show this to you and tell you what, uh, those here in the congregation, if you want to pass that around uh, as long as you have uh, sanitized your hands. Uh, So go ahead and pass it around, and you can see a good diagram of everything uh, as far as where the, um, I'm sorry, as far as where the um, tribes, I couldn't think of the word, as far as where the tribes are mapped out in the camp. So chapter 2 really deals with the 12 tribes of Israel. And you had the camp of Judah to the east, which would guard the door of the tabernacle, and that was Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Then you had the camp of Reuben on the south with Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. The camp of Ephraim was on the west with Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And then the camp of Dan was on the north, which was Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. I know that one of the teenagers would come up to me after service if they were here and say, wasn't the, the Levites left out of it? How are there still 12 tribes? Well, remember, there wasn't a tribe of Joseph. Joseph had Ephraim and Manasseh. So even though the Levites are not included in this, uh, it is made up for in Joseph being actually split into Ephraim and Manasseh. Chapter 3 talks about 
the Levites and the priests, Moses and the tabernacle. So chapter 2 talks about the 12 tribes. Chapter 3, the Levites, the priests, Moses and the tabernacle. In verse 5 through 10 of chapter 3, the Bible says that the Levites are given to Aaron and his sons as helpers with the tabernacle. And this was for a specific reason in verse 12. The Bible says, I am choosing the Levites to help in the tabernacle instead of using the firstborn males from any tribe. Remember back in Exodus chapter 13, after God delivered the people from Egypt, he said, sanctify unto me all the firstborn, both of man and beast, it is mine. So the Levites were now chosen to represent all of the firstborns. And it just so happens, the Bible shows us in the end of chapter 3, all of the Levite males were numbered from one month old and up out of, out of uh, their tribe. And they total 22,000 even. All of the firstborn males that they are cho chosen to represent from a month old and upward number 22,273. That's not a coincidence. God knew exactly what he was doing. If he was going to take all of the firstborn males out of all the tribes, he would have had 22,273 helpers in the tabernacle. Instead, he chooses just the firstborn, uh, just, I'm sorry, all of the males of the Levites, and they number 22,000. So there's a difference of 273, and it's very interesting. You read the end of the chapter, and those 273 uh, extras paid the Levites five shekels, and they actually redeemed themselves. And there's a call to this in the New Testament when the Bible says we are redeemed, not by corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. Uh, why was all of this taken place? Why didn't God just use the firstborn like he had first called for in Exodus chapter 13? It wasn't because he changed his mind. The Levites were there in a representative fashion. The firstborn was all still the Lord's. But to take the Levites as their own tribe and make them specifically the helpers for the tabernacle was much more orderly than taking the firstborn males from every tribe. If we go back in the chapter now, verses 14 through 37, the Levites are now numbered. And they were split up. The Levites were split up into three different families. You had the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Murrahites. That's hard to say. <laughs> the Gershonites... Kohathites and Murrahites. And each family was given a specific place to camp. And you can see that again on the diagram with Gershon to the west, Kohath to the south, uh, Merari to the north, and then Moses, Aaron, and the priests are placed at the east of the tabernacle. So notice right in the center, what is right in the center of the Israelite camp? The tabernacle, a beautiful picture that God's presence dwelt in the midst of of his people. Now these chapters don't only give where they would camp, uh, but they also give the order in which they would travel. When it's time to move, this camp goes first, and then this one, and then this one. Everything was done in perfect order. Also, the duties that the Levites and the priests had as far as caring for the tabernacle and moving the tabernacle were touched on. Chapter 4, uh, chapter four goes into more detail about how the priests and Levites were to approach this responsibility. Chapter 4 tells us that only the male Levites from 30 years old to 50 years old were called to help move the tabernacle. And first we see in chapter 4 the duty of Aaron and the priests. They were in charge of packing up the tabernacle, especially covering everything. Uh, notice how everything, the, the Ark of the Covenant was covered with the veil. The altar was covered. The instruments were covered. Everything had to be covered. Aaron's son, Eleazar, in verse 16, he had a specific job. But once they were all done, the Kohathites would then come in and they would carry all of these covered tabernacle instruments. And this was incredibly important. The Kohathites were called to carry the most holy things of the tabernacle. And read in verse 18 through 20, any disorder, any failure for the 
uh, for Aaron and the priest to do their job um, would basically put the Kohathites in danger. Uh, the Kohathites could not enter into the tabernacle until everything was covered. Um, it, it was an extremely detailed process. The Gershonites' job is given in 25 through 28. The Merorites' job is given in 29 through 23. And then in 34 through 49, all of the Levite males between 30 to 50 are numbered, and they total 8,580. So picture this with me. When that cloud moves... 8,580 men are coming into the tabernacle. That could be very chaotic, but every single one of them had a specific job. No family was to cross over and help another family. If anybody tried to do somebody else's job or failed to do their job properly, everybody would be put in danger. Everything was to be done in order. Now, with these orders given to the Israelites, Chapter 5 through 6 speak about old and new laws that would remind God's people about their holiness. So we see in the early parts of the book how there's a picture of God's presence being among them in, in the middle. Well, the holiness shouldn't just be represented by a symbol uh, or by the tabernacle being in the middle. No, they needed to represent this in their lives. So in chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, the lepers are removed not to be left behind, but they would just follow behind with the mixed multitude uh, until hopefully they could be cleansed. Uh, verse 5 through 10 talked about trespass offerings, and those were reiterated. Verse 11 through 31 gives provision um, for when a husband suspected a wife of, of adultery. Chapter 6 even details how one could take the vow of a Nazarite, and this was truly going above and beyond in the matter of holiness and separation, which is the focus of those two chapters. In chapter 7, we find an incredibly beautiful story of unity and appreciation for God's order and his authority, uh, and it comes through a voluntary offering given by the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the second longest chapter in the Bible, second only to Psalm chapter 119. Uh, we're going to go ahead and read chapter 7 in its entirety. I'm just kidding. So, but I do encourage you to read it, okay, and notice the detail that is given. Uh, first of all, notice with me, though, just some, some highlights here. All of it was accepted by God in verse 4 and 5. God said, take it, take it of them. Uh, he didn't command them to do it. It was voluntary, and he said, take it of them. Each tribe gave, uh, each tribe gave the same thing. Uh, this wasn't a contest between them. Benjamin never would have been able to give as much as Judah, um, but it, it wasn't a contest. They apparently went around to each other and said, what could we all give in unity? All the same thing. And um, the third thing here, all of it was given to the Levites. In verse 6 and 7, everything that was, that was given was, was given to the Levites so that they could fulfill their office. I think it's funny to see, in, um, or let me say it's interesting to see in verse 7 and 8 that along with this gift to the Levites, the Gershonites and the Merorites got wagons and oxen. Uh, that were given, but the Kohathites did not. No, no carts given to the Kohathites, no oxen given. Why? Because they were to carry the furniture of the tabernacle on their shoulders. Uh, that was their job. So apparently, to remove temptation, to disobey, and to put things on carts and oxen, Moses said, you get no carts and no oxen. Uh, and then this leads God speaking, uh, to God speaking to Moses from the mercy seat in verse 89 at the close of the chapter. And what's interesting to me is that this whole chapter could be told in a few sentences. They all gave this, and they did it voluntarily, and it was accepted, and it was wonderful. And then God spoke to them from the mercy seat. But again, we see the order of God. God gives each tribe's gift the same attention and the same detail. Every man is named, every gift is recorded thoroughly. Chapter 8 talks about, in the verse, first four verses, the lighting of the lamps in the tabernacle. 
which then lead to the consecration of the Levites throughout the rest of the chapter. Now, don't confuse this with Leviticus chapter 8, where Aaron and his sons were consecrated. And I even misspoke last week. I said when I was talking about Leviticus chapter 8 that God was making it clear that he had chosen the Levites to take care of the tabernacle. Not at that point. He had just chosen Aaron and his sons. So think of it this way. Aaron was the family. Aaron and his sons were the family. Now, Aaron was a Levite, but Aaron specifically and his line of sons were chosen to be the priests. The Levites were the tribe, and the tribe was the helpers to the family of the priests. Another way you can think of it is every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. And this consecration of the Levites came in four significant steps, and it was all for the purpose of cleansing, we see in verse 7. Uh, first of all, they were washed. And then second of all, they had to shave. They shaved their head, they shaved their beard, they shaved their arms, they shaved their, their whole body. And this sounds familiar. Okay, we've read this before, but it wasn't a call back to what the priests had to do. Aaron and his sons didn't have to shave. So... Where else did we hear this? Well, it was when a leper was cleansed in Leviticus chapter 14, verse 9. When a leper was cleansed, he had to shave. And this, many believe, and I agree, is a call back to Genesis chapter 34. If you remember that uh, one of Jacob's daughters, Rhoda, goes down to see the daughters of the land, and uh, she is defiled by a man named Shechem, and then Simeon and Levi go into Shechem and slaughter Shechem, slaughter his father, and slaughter all of the males of the city. And even in Jacob's blessing of his sons in Genesis chapter 49, he calls Simeon and Levi violent. Uh, he says, you just have this violent string in you. Uh, how could that family be put into the office of, the, uh, to, of helping the priesthood? Well, they had to be cleansed and they had to be forgiven. And this was a sign from God. You have been cleansed from that. Their clothes were washed. That was the third thing. But then lastly, in verse 8 through 22, there was atonement made. And that was the most important thing that we have seen from Leviticus especially. Um, it ends in the chapter with the Levites from 25 to 50 being set apart for service. This is not a contradiction in the Bible. Um, the Levites from 30 to 50 were commissioned in moving the tabernacle, but anyone from 25 to 30 you, or 29, you were not there to move the tabernacle. You had to wait until you were a little older. You were just there to help serve. After you were 50, you were then given authority over the younger, but you did no more labor. You weren't picking up anything. You weren't helping in a laborious manner, but you were there to have authority. Again, a key theme of this book. And it reminds us tonight, as the Levites served their high priest in a sanctified way, so the church serves our high priest, Jesus Christ. And the best way to do that is through God's house. That is where we serve. That is how we serve. Chapter 9, the Passover is observed. This is happy in the fact that it shows that it's been a year uh, since they came out of Egypt. It's sad in that this is the only Passover that they will observe until Joshua chapter 5. There's no explanation for why they didn't, uh, but they will not observe another Passover until Joshua chapter 5. Um, another thing that talks about in chapter 9 um, men who were ritually unclean came up to Moses and said it, it was of no fault of ours that, you know, basically we had to deal with a dead body. It had to be dealt with. And because of that, we're unclean and we weren't able to partake in the Passover. Is there anything that we can do? And there was actually provision made for them to take part in what is even called today the little Passover, which was an exact, uh, exactly a month later on the second month and the 14th day. And you see that in verse 11. And it's here where we begin to see the book transitioning. As the people are getting ready to move and begin their journey, the book begins to transition. In verse 15 through 23, the Bible talks about the cloud by day and the fire by night uh, and describes the characteristics of it all. Mainly, it was direction from God. They followed wherever that cloud went or wherever that pillar went. If it stayed still for a year, for a month, for two years, it did not matter. 
you followed wherever that cloud went. Again, a symbol of God's authority. You move when he, move, when he says to move, you stay when he tells you to stay. Uh, Brother Raspberry, uh, the gentleman who, the preacher up in Wiley, Texas, who's really helping me throughout this study, he put it this way, always remember, waiting by faith can be just as hard as walking by faith, but both of them take faith. Um, another thing that this cloud and this fire would do, it would give shade by day, it would give warmth by night. The kids probably played by its light at night, but it was always a constant reminder of God's presence in their midst. Chapter 10, uh, God calls for two silver trumpets to be made, and different trumpet sounds were assigned so that everybody could know what to do and when. There were calls to gather, there were calls for just the princes to gather. There were calls for each camp to know when to move. There were calls for war, calls for feasts. All of this brought order to what could have been a very chaotic situation. Millions of people, the cloud's moving, let's all go. No, 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 hold up, hold up. That's what the trumpets were for. And towards the end, verse 11 through 28, the Israelites actually begin their journey. Read verse 11 through 28. See the order of everything. There is no other way that such a large group could have traveled. Unfortunately, it's beginning here in chapter 11 that things begin to go very wrong. And notice how each significant problem is mostly caused by, a, caused by a disagreement with authority that God has set up and therefore complications arise. In chapter 11, immediately the people begin to complain. Fire from God begins to consume the people. It's only stopped when Moses prays. And then right after that, in verses 4 through 10, the mixed multitude, which were the Egyptians that uh, we believe intermarried with the Israelites in Egypt, start saying they wish they were back in Egypt. We miss the food there, the cucumbers, the leeks, and the onions. And this then spreads to the Israelites and causes them to begin complaining about the manna. Yeah, that sounds better than, than everything here. And when Moses hears this, he already seems to be at his breaking point in verse 11 through 15. And Moses basically tells God, I cannot handle this much authority. Look at what he says in verse 14. I am not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me. He even goes so far as to ask God to kill him. Verse 16 through 20, God responds to Moses' dilemma, and he says, okay, I want you to choose 70 men to share your authority. This is going to come back to bite Moses later. Um, and then God says, I'm going to feed the people what they want. And Moses then doubts that God can do that. He says, how are you going to do that? We're seeing a side of Moses right now that, that worries us, a side that we really haven't seen before. But remember, he's, he's human. And God asks in verse 23, is the Lord's hand waxed short? Moses goes, he actually chooses the 70 men. And then in verse 30 through 35, God does provide quails for the people, an enormous amount of meat. But while they're eating it, the Lord smites the people with the plague for their complaining. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, God refers to this time in Israel's history as when they, quote, tempted God in the wilderness, end quote. Now, to tempt God is basically saying this, God, I want you to work in the way I want you to work. I want you to do things my way. I want you to give me what I want. Now remember, our way is always wrong. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. When we seek our way over God's way, the time is eventually going to come where God says, okay, fine. I'll give you your way just to show you how foolish it is. And it even talks about this in Psalm 106, verse 15, about this very instance. The Bible says, God gave them their request, but sent leanness unto their soul. In chapter 12, things grow even worse. Moses' own brother and sister begin bad-mouthing him in front of the people. Uh, first of all, they're complaining that Moses had married an Ethiopian woman, but the main thing that they're complaining about is in verse 2. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? Moses has too much authority. He speaks through us too. Why, why aren't we getting our due attention as well? Now this was possibly, I would say probably, based off of Moses' own admission in chapter 11 and the fact that he had to spread his authority to 70 other people. Now what Verse 3 shows us is that the reason Moses said that 
was because he was a very meek man. Meekness is strength under control. Um, Moses was no doubt the best leader in, in, in Scripture, um, and, but he never saw himself that way. Um, so he was not saying what he said in, in chapter 11 because he was not able to handle such authority. God wouldn't have called him to it if he was not able to handle it with God's help. But he was a very meek man. And God in verse 4 through 16 makes it very clear that Moses is my chosen authority. Miriam is struck by leprosy. Um, Miriam and, and Aaron do repent and she's eventually cured, but then she's exiled for a week. Uh, chapter 13 begins their sojourn in the wilderness of Paran. And it's here that the 12 spies are sent out. Now, you know, the, you know the song, 10 were bad and two were good. 10 come back and say, there's no way. And two say, it's, it's a good report. Let's go. The, the land is ready for us. But the 10 of the spies basically whip up the Israelites into this fearful frenzy, convince them there's, there's no way to possess the land. I mean, every corner of the land is already possessed, and on top of all of that, there's giants there. And in chapter 14, let's go ahead and read what happens. Verse 1, And all of the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, the godly authorities, and the whole congregation said unto them, would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, here's an idea. Let us make a captain. And let us return into Egypt. Let's set up our own authority. And when Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua try to calm them down, it doesn't work. The people actually call for them to be stoned. I mean, order is dissolving very quickly. Why? Because things are out of order right now. And things are falling into chaos. In verse 11 and 12, God says, I'm just going to wipe them out. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. Moses intercedes for the people. And he basically ends his entire uh, intercession in verse 19. says, you've forgiven them so many times and we've gotten this far. Please forgive them again, just like you have from Egypt until now. And God says in verse 20, okay, fine, I'll, I'll pardon them. However, punishment has to come down. And just like with the quails in chapter 11, the punishment is God giving the people what they want. He says, you said you didn't want to go into Canaan, so you won't. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until every person from 20 years old and upward dies, except for Caleb and Joshua. Now, when the people hear this, they quickly have a change of heart. They try to go to the promised land anyway. Moses tells them, don't do that. And in direct disobedience to Moses' authority, they begin to travel towards Canaan. The, and some inhabitants come down and smite them, and, and it's a big mess. So in chapter 15... God reminds his people about their call to holiness, and he starts giving laws again. And people say, oh, well, this, is, this doesn't seem to fit. Well, no, it's, remember what God just told them, I have pardoned you. Well, how did God bring about pardon? Through offerings and through a way to find your sins to be atoned for. So this chapter right here, Numbers 15, is proof of God's pardon from verse 20 of chapter 14. Now, Another reason it is put here is because verse 32 of chapter 15 seems to give the impression that at least one of the people believed that since I'm not going into the promised land anymore, there's no more reason to obey. Amanda is found gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Um, that's pretty clear that you don't do that, and that's been clear from the beginning. And so they put him in war. God, what should we, God, what should we do? And he says, put him to death. And what is God trying to say? Listen, just because your punishment is the inability to go into the promised land, that does not exempt you from being holy. The next 40 years in the wilderness are not just going to be filled with living however you want to live. And it's really to teach, and tell you what, look in verse 37. To teach this lesson further, I think there's no better illustration of it than here. God says in verse 37, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. 
and it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which ye used to go a whoring, that ye may remember and do all the commandments and be holy unto your God. Yes, even in the wilderness. Oh, one of the teenagers fell. We still have the, uh, the pictures up here and one of them just fell over. So you would think after all of this that people would have learned their lesson. But chapter 16 shows us otherwise, with another group of people challenging Moses' God-given authority. The infamous story of Korah's rebellion. And what does he say to Moses? Ye take too much upon you. Again, probably based from chapter 11, you are no more special than us. He, he says, we're all holy, aren't we? So what made you so special? Who gives you authority over us? And Moses responds, and it's a twofold response. And first of all, he says in verse 4 through 7, My authority is given by God, and I'll prove it to you. I want you to grab a censer with fire and incense, and God is going to show us whom he has chosen for his authority. But then the second part of it, he looks back at him in verse 8 through 11, and he asks this question. He says, Is it not enough for you, Korah, that God has already given you the authority to care for the tabernacle? And now you want the priesthood also? So obviously, uh, Korah is doubting Aaron's authority as well. He's saying, God has given you so much authority already, and now you want more? This makes no sense. God is going to prove to you who he has chosen. Along with Korah were others. Dathan and Abiram were a couple. When Moses calls for them, they blatantly say no. And you know the story in 15 through 40. Moses' authority is established. Uh, Korah and his rebels are swallowed up by the earth. And how do the people respond? Well, in verse 41, they accuse Moses and Aaron of killing the people. You've killed the people of the Lord. Another plague is sent, and you can read that throughout the rest of the chapter, um, but we'll move on for sake of time. So in chapter 16, Moses' authority is settled. In chapter 17, Aaron's is settled with the rod that buds. But look at what it leads up to. It leads up to this key complaint from the people in chapter 17 and verse 12. The children of Israel spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, we die, we perish, we all perish. <laughs> we die, we, die we, we perish, we all perish. Whosoever cometh anything near unto the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Shall we be consumed with dying? And chapters 18 and 19 are God's answer to this complaint. And he says in chapter 18, My desire is not for you all to die. My desire is for you to be holy. And God reminds them, Why do you think I chose the Levites? Why do you think I separated them to help in the tabernacle? Why do you think I wrote the book of Leviticus to you? Look in verse 5. I did that, that there be no wrath anymore upon the children of Israel. Throughout the rest of the chapter, he talks about how the Levites were to do their job properly. It talks about the tithe and how each part of the offering, part of it was given to the Levites. And what is God saying? Simply put, when the Levites do their job properly and when the people do what they're supposed to do with the tithe and sacrifices, nobody dies. Just Obey what God has told you to do. Just submit to his authority and everything will be fine. But even if that is not enough, chapter 19 gives a completely new ordinance. Don't laugh. Of the red heifer. Chapter 19 is all about the offering of the red heifer. And all it is is a provision for the people to know that they could be cleansed of their sins before even approaching the tabernacle. And you can see Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 14, how Christ is pictured in this chapter here. Chapter 20, we have to move on. More complaining. And, and listen, th there were 40 years scattered throughout this. It's not like this was the next day and the next day. There were scatters in between this, but uh, there is more complaining in chapter 20. And it's important to note that God speaks nothing of punishment. Uh, he simply tells Moses to grab his rod and to speak to a rock and water would come out. Uh, now, why was, told, why was Moses told to grab his rod? Not to hit the rock, but because the rod was a symbol of Moses' what? Authority. Okay? 
So in chapter 20, verse 10 and 11, we see Moses' failure. Now, there are hundreds of explanations. If I were in Moses' position, I would not have lasted this long. There were hundreds of explanations for why Moses did what he did, but there was not one excuse for it. Moses showed anger. He showed frustration. He even showed pride when he said in verse 10, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Moses had nothing to do with it. It was all the Lord. But all of it was based, the Bible says, off of unbelief in verse 12. God said, you didn't believe me. Moses didn't believe that God would provide water for such a rebellious people. In verse 14 through 22, the Edomites refused to let the Israelites pass through their borders. That's going to be a big part of the uh, history of Israel later in the Old Testament. And then, Mo and then Aaron dies later in the chapter. Chapter 21, things get so much better. No, another failure. And the, the uh, people um, are sent fiery serpents from God. And Moses is commanded to make a serpent of brass and lift it up. And anybody who had been struck by one of these serpents, all he had to do was look. And it's a beautiful picture of a couple things for us. First of all, with God's wrath always comes his mercy. But then also it's a picture of Jesus as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so much the Son of Man be lifted up. So we have reached chapter 21. By this time in the book, the people have failed so often and so greatly that even Moses has begun to doubt that God will keep his promise to them. And honestly, does anybody feel any different? After all they did, and, and somebody texted me this last week, it's really easy to read your Bible and say, man, the Israelites. And then you look in the mirror and think, I'm just as bad and even worse. But honestly, we feel the same way with Moses. But then look at what happens in chapter 22 through 24. You are going to see right now one of the greatest illustrations of God's mercy and grace and his covenant promise, I believe, that has ever been recorded. Think about this with me. As the Israelites enter into the plains of Moab, right across from Canaan, Balak, the king of Moab, freaks out because he sees this huge company of people that are coming through his land. So he hires a very puzzling man named Balaam to curse the Israelites. And he says, I want you to curse them because, he says in verse 6, I wot, or I believe, that he whom thou blessest is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. Now, for anybody who doubts that God has a sense of humor, I encourage you to read chapter 22. But to shorten a long story, while Balak tries to get Balaam to curse Israel three times, Balaam instead can't curse them, but finds that he can only bless them. The first blessing is in chapter 23, verse 8 through 10, where he says, Israel is blessed by God, Israel is holy to God, and Israel is righteous. And then Balak moves him and he says, well, curse him from here. And the second blessing is found in chapter 23, verse 19 through 24. And it's all about God's faithfulness to his promises, God's mercy upon Israel's sin. Look at what Balaam says about God, God's reaction to Israel's sin. So on a scale of 1 to 10, what is Israel's sin right now? I would rate it about a 10, okay? Uh, but look at what verse, let me see here, 20. 1, verse 21 of chapter 23 says, He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. To God, he loved his people. He, he didn't, what iniquity, what perverseness, it's been atoned for. Oh man, that's really good. Okay, so if you're not going to get excited about it, I will. It talks about God's power in delivering them from Egypt. It talks about God's victory that he's going to give his people. The third blessing in chapter 24, verse 5 through 9. Look at what Balaam says at the very end of verse 9. Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. God is going to do what he always said he was going to do with his people. It's a call back to Genesis 12, verse 3, the Abrahamic covenant. And it's also a stark contrast to Numbers chapter 22, verse 6, where Balak says, I think whoever you curse will be cursed, and I think whoever you bless will be blessed. And Balaam comes back and says, no, that's up to God, not me. So think about this. Oh, and that all leads, by the way, to Balaam's last word to Balak. Let's go ahead and read that in chapter 24, verse 17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, 
and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab. That's a bold thing to say in front of the king of Moab. And destroy all the children of Seth. Talking about Messiah, how Jesus would come. So think about this with me. While Israel is grumbling and complaining and rebelling down in the plains of Moab, completely unknown to them, up in the mountains of Moab, God is protecting them. And God is even blessing them through Balaam. Now, according to Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, Balaam did find a way to somehow lead the Israelites to mingle with the Moabites and Midianites. And this is what chapter 25 is all about. And let it be a lesson to us. We don't need anybody to curse us. When God's people simply mingle with the world, we'll bring a curse upon ourselves. That is the lesson of chapter 25. Moving on here, in chapter 26, the new generation is numbered and basic instructions are given how the promised land is to be divided. It was all divided upon need. Bigger tribes, more land. Smaller tribes, less land. And it also was, uh, was divvied out by the fathers in verse 55. Notice again a call to order and authority. This is based off of the authority of the home. Uh, this posed an issue for some ladies in chapter 27 that had no father. Um, they lost him in the wilderness wanderings um, and provision was made for them to still receive an inheritance. Also in chapter 27, Moses is told by God to prepare to die. And notice what Moses' main concern is. When he is told by God, it is time for you to die, look in chapter 27, verse 16. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. There needs to be authority. Without authority, there's no order. Verse 17, which may go out before them and which may go in before them and which may lead them out and which may bring them in that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. And, Moses, and God says to Moses, I want you to commission Joshua as your successor. And now that the people are numbered, orders were given for dividing the land. Um, chapters 28 and 29 again deal with ordinances of worship. Another reminder right before they enter the promised land that they were to take their religion with them, not to follow the religion of the Canaanites of the land that they are about to go in. Chapter 30 is dealing with a matter of vows. Out of place? No, absolutely not. And the Bible's talking about when a man makes a vow, it's binding. When a lady makes a vow, her father or her husband could disannul that vow. However, if her father or her husband held his peace, or if the lady was widowed, the vow was binding also. Again, a call to authority, an order in the home. In chapter 31, we're told of the Israelites' battle with the Midianites, and this was to cleanse away the sins that were brought by the council of Balaam. But this leads to an issue. The Midianites lived on the east side of Jordan, not in the Promised Land, and they're defeated and their spoils are divided out, half to the soldiers, half to the congregation. A portion is given to the Lord from everybody and even a free will offering is given from the officers. But in chapter 32, you have Gad, Reuben, and half of the tribe of Manasseh that start looking around at this land that has been recently freed up from this Midianite war. And they go to Moses and say, we want to live here. We don't want to go to the promised land. We want to live here. Now, no doubt they had received a lot of cattle from the Midianite war. And since the Midianites had a lot of cattle, it stands to reason that the Midianite land was well suited to take care of cattle. And that's exactly what the Bible says in chapter 32, verse 1 and 4. Even the country with the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle, and thy servants have cattle. So they come up with this agreement. They are going to settle with their families on the east side of Jordan, but they're going to send all of their soldiers over the river to fight. And then once all the battles are done, then they were going to come back over. Was this the right thing to do? Well, it wasn't the promised land. So no, I would say. And then also unnecessary, unnecessary problems arise in the future because of this split of God's people. And also, yes, they settled first, but they were also captured first when the Babylonian captivity came. Chapter 33 is a review of all the places that they've been on their journey. Read that chapter without noticing God's order and discipline through it all. And the chapter ends with a solemn warning about entering into the promised land. God says, you are to drive out the Canaanites completely from the land. 
If you fail to do so, God said, I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. And that's a call back to verse to chapter 1, when he numbered the soldiers. Why? Because military conquest. If the land is defiled by paganism and idolatry, get the people out of the land. That's what Israel was supposed to do, and we know the future. They don't get the Canaanites out of the land, so what does God do? Exactly what he says he would do in verse 56. He sends the Babylonians to clear them out from the land. Chapters 34 and 35 talk about the borders of the promised land, how 48 cities were to be designated for the uh, Levites since they had no inheritance of their own. Six of these cities were to be cities of refuge for someone who accidentally committed murder. This was not to escape justice. This was to ensure justice. And God said in chapter 35, verse 33 and 34, I'm doing this so that you don't defile the land. Blood defiles a land, and the only way to remove uh, the defilement from the land is if the man who shed the blood is killed as well. And this shifts our thinking here as we come to the end of Numbers chapter 36 and 35. God is showing them, listen, we're, you need to keep this land pure. You need to keep it holy when you go over into it. We're not just talking about keeping a camp holy anymore. We're keeping an entire nation, an entire uh, land of Canaan holy. And don't just think because your borders are expanding that I don't see what's going on. You have to be holy. So with this in mind, that leads us to chapter 36. The ladies from chapter 27 who said we have no inheritance because our father died, so now they're starting to think, okay, when we go over there, what happens when we settle first with our families and then let's say we marry a man from another tribe? Do they then share in our inheritance or do we share with their inheritance and then are the tribes able to go across borders? And what does God say? Marry in your own tribe. Just marry in your own tribe. Why? Order. And the ladies obey. Um, and no, that is not out of place at all. It shows us, it's not a strange ending. They're on the right track. They're thinking about how to keep things orderly and decent. But certainly, this isn't going to be the only question. Uh, it is going to be a big change transitioning from living in tents in the wilderness to settling in the promised land. They're going to be dealing with heathen people, possessing lands, laying borders. The schedule is going to fill up real quick. And Moses, their God-given authority, is about to die. And he's going to speak to them one last time before they go over, and that is the book of Deuteronomy. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.